Is Israel's Mossad the world's greatest institution for intelligence collection, covert operations, and counterterrorism? Why is now the time for Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to resign? Is President Biden the most committed American president to Israel's security ever? Mr. Danny Atom is a pillar within modern day Israel, and thus our discussion covers a ton of ground. Mr. Yatom's first-hand account of the key players, international landscape, and closed-door meetings is the making of a spy thriller. But this is all real. From Yasser Arafat's PLO to Bill Clinton's special relationship with Israel's Prime Minister Ehud Barak, Yatom covers it all. The former director of Mossad, Mr. Yatom's illustrious career is impressive. Mr. Yatom served in the IDF from 1963 to 1996, working in the elite Sayerat Maktal force and eventually rising to the head of the Israeli Central Command, ranked Major General. It is worth noting, in 1994, Yatom served as the IDF commander for the West Bank and eventually became a member of the Knesset. Most impressively, Mr. Yatom served as Prime Minister Ehud Barak's Chief of Staff and Security Advisor, a rare role in Israeli government. I am honored that Mr. Yatom took the time to share his life experiences with me on some future day. Danny, thank you. Almost all my life, in addition to fighting our enemies, I try also to find a way in order to strike a peaceful deal with our neighbors. Danny, thank you for joining some future day. It's a pleasure to see you today. Thank you very much, Mark, for inviting me. So let's start with technology in general. I realize that Israel and Mossad has a tremendous amount of um, technology that is used to its advantage. Can you talk briefly about the higher level of technology that Israel and Mossad has. Obviously, I, I know a lot of this is, is confidential and classified, but in general terms, give us a, a rundown. Yes, I'll try. Firstly, you know that our nickname is uh, the Startup Nation. Israel is considered to be the Startup Nation. This is mainly because uh, many Israelis, relatively to the number in uh, the, the population, are dealing uh, with uh, startups, either developing uh, startups or investing in startups. And uh, this is due mainly to the following reasons. The first one, there are creative Israelis. There are also creative Americans. But I think that uh, relatively to the number of population, Israel leads in the world with creative people. Just look uh, at uh, the Nobel Prize laureates. There are some 10 or 11 or 12 Israelis with uh, Nobel Prize, which are Nobel Prize laureates in uh, many spheres. And in relation to the number of population, we are, I think, second in the world. Secondly, the Israelis, there is a compulsory service, and the Israelis are serving 
in combat units and some others. When they accomplished their military tour after uh, between two and a half uh, to three years, now it will probably become again three years, when they study physics, mathematics, or whatever, they have the uh, advantage of being both academics in those uh, areas, but also young people that acquire a lot of uh, experience serving in the military. So, for instance, if somebody is a pilot in the military service and he is a reservist, he has, in order to keep his capabilities, he has to fly at least one day per week. In the other days, he is working in, let's say, a big firm like uh, Intel or whatever it is. When he is asked to develop something for the Air Force or an aeroplane for a pilot, he has the advantage over many others which are residing in many other countries that were not pilots, and they don't know exactly what are the needs of a pilot. The same with, with naval officers, the same with uh, infantry officers, or not, not necessarily officers, but also uh, soldiers, and so on and so forth. So the fact that we have a compulsory service helps add us a lot to come with ideas and with uh, solutions that the other belonging to any other countries they cannot compete with because the experience is, is very, very important. And we have a wonderful advanced military industry that, for instance, uh, in many cases comes with ideas and present the ideas to the Mossad and to the Shin Bet, which is parallel to the FBI and to the Israel Defense Forces. They come with ideas because they understand exactly what need the one in the field. And uh, in many, many cases, the startups and the new developments, the, the new developed uh, devices that Israel developed and produced, while the initiator is not the military, is not the, is not the army. The initiator is the uh, engineer, which is also a pilot that uh, works in a high-tech company. The second thing is that we are pushed to the world. We are a small country, and uh, we are surrounded by enemies. Now uh, it's a, an excellent uh, example to portray the situation of uh, the Israelis. We, are, we were under a brutal attack. The Hamas attacked us, surprisingly, killed, slaughtered, raped, cut pieces of bodies, beheaded the babies, some atrocities, some horrific things. And uh, I bring it as an example because 
on a daily basis. We need to be on a high alert. And uh, the need brings the opportunities. We need to be the best because we are few against many. We need to have the best weapon systems. We need to train the, the best way our soldiers. So there is a need. And due to the need, we are doing our utmost in order to come with new elements, in order to keep the qualitative edge between us and our enemies. So, you know, Danny, that's interesting. I was actually told by, um, recently, last week, I was told by an IDF soldier who um, served on the border where the, you know, some people call it the Iron Wall, um, this, this, you know, very highly advanced technological wall exists separating Gaza from Israel. I was told that he actually served on that wall in that area for an extended period of time and that it was so sensitive that even if a bird or a dog touched it, it would alert and, and immediately the soldiers would go over and, and, and see what, what caused that, um, that alert. So I'm curious, if the technology is so advanced and so high, how was Hamas able to infiltrate on October 7th with such you know, crude, what appears to be at least such crude means on their side? Well, it is our fault, first and foremost. We failed. We, the Israeli Defense Forces and the political leadership, and the intelligence apparatuses all were under a false conception. And the conception was, it came from the government and the prime minister of Israel, and the conception was that Hamas is deterred. And as long as Hamas is deterred, Hamas will never ever try to do something that will put him in a clash with Israel. Of course, that it was uh, a big mistake because Hamas was never deterred. And this is, of course, the failure of the intelligence apparatuses not to read correctly the capabilities of Hamas and uh, what Hamas uh, thinks about doing in the relation between Hamas and Israel. But not only that, the other part of the conception was that this is a conflict. The conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis is a conflict that can be managed. We can contain it. Meaningly, Netanyahu does not want that uh, a Palestinian state will be created. He does not believe in two states' solutions to the two peoples. He is against it, and he says it now loud and clear in his uh, negotiation with the Americans, with, with, the, with Mr. Blinken that right now is in Israel today. So in order to foil any attempt to create a Palestinian state, what Netanyahu did, he diminished the Palestinian authority which rules Judea and Samaria administratively, and he strengthened the Hamas by 
giving the Hamas money, humanitarian aid, gasoline, whatever. And the Hamas grew up. Now, part of the money, now, when we see the huge tunnels, something like 500 kilometers of tunnels underneath the surface, in many, in many places, it, is, it goes down to 50 or 60 meters. Unbelievable. We failed in understanding those tunnels. We knew a little, a little bit about it, but we didn't know with the intelligence. Didn't know enough about it. And the cement, for instance, that uh, entered into Gaza, in most of the cases, was uh, taken forcefully by the Hamas, and the Hamas used it in order to build the tunnels in order to give it to the population so that the population will be able to enjoy it by building new houses and many other things, or, or uh, paving roads, whatever. So this was the conception. And uh, it touched also the military apparatuses, from the chief of staff down to... I don't know, it can go down a, a long way because a military force should be ready always, 24-7, to conduct its mission. And the mission there was to defend the civilians. The mission there was to defend the settlements. And what happened was that the level of alert was not enough, and therefore those 3,000 terrorists were able to penetrate into the area where people were still sleeping, and uh, they invaded sensitive areas like, for instance, the headquarters of the, the division commander. The headquarter of the division commander was attacked in the first stage and he could not manage his forces. He was under attack. He fought for his life. He had no time and he had uh, no uh, capability to organize his forces and to counterattack, etc., etc. So this is not the Technology betrayed us, okay? This is because technology cannot fully replace us. There is a limitation. Until when technology can be of an end, but never ever think that technology can replace you. You need a human being as a back in order to be sure that if something happens to technology, you have a backing solution. So if, if then the dichotomy is between technology and intelligence or human, and there was a, you know, it's been reported that there was, and again, you know, who knows whether or not these reports are accurate, but I did read, and I'm sure you did too, that uh, there was information about Hamas's capabilities and planning that went to the Israeli 
leadership, the Israeli government, in advance of October 7th. That sounds like a human breakdown. Did they just, if that's true in your expert opinion, did they just believe that they could rely on the technology to be safe? Or did they also believe that Hamas was incapable of pulling off such a a thing, notwithstanding the fact that it had all of this money and um, support from international players, including both, by the way, Iran and the United States, right? The United States was um, funding Gaza and Hamas too. Yes, technology is very important. But as I said, it uh, has limitations. And uh, what Hamas did, he studied us very well and he found our weak points in the system. And when they started the invasion, they uh, bombed or whatever, certain places, and by that they blind the entire capability of the forces to use the very advanced cameras in order to try and uh, to locate those that cross the border. But those cameras were not even needed because the soldiers that uh, sit next to the, or were deployed next to the border, those ones that did not sleep and were on alert out of their barracks, they saw them by, by, by bare eyes. In this case, cameras could not help. The early warning that one could achieve or, or understand or provide depends on when did the spotters saw the, the, the terrorists and they saw them maybe five minutes before they invaded their own places. So it was not enough. What we left was something which is more deep. Information, not only about the capabilities, but information about the intentions of the Hamas. And here we did not have an information about the intentions of Hamas. I'll tell you the truth. I will also in the Yom Kippur War. I was then a deputy commander of a tank battalion. After I finished my service in uh, in Sayyid Matkan, in the commando unit. And we were surprised when the war broke out. You know how did I understand it? that the war broke out? Only when Egyptian airplanes bombed us in our uh, barracks. Only then we understood that the war started. Here it was exactly the same. They uh, crossed the fence and they crossed the border and then it took them less than five minutes to arrive to, 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 to the headquarters and to arrive to the places where soldiers were sleeping. So we need technology. Many weapon systems based on high technology are in use today in Gaza, in the Gaza Strip by, by Israeli uh, soldiers. But technology is not enough. And technology, as I said previously, cannot give all the answers. 
according to the definition, and it is a very, very strict definition, the first and foremost goal of the intelligence apparatuses is to provide an accurate and on-time early warning that a war might break out. The intelligence failed totally. It did not provide it. It failed in its main mission. It did not fulfill its main mission. Now, the same with uh, uh, deterrence and the same with uh, uh, being able to decide the enemy. We did not decide the enemy this day on the, on the 7th of October. Unfortunately, it is not that easy to say, but during the first day or during the first 24 hours, we, the Israelis, lost the Hamas. And it took us some two days in order to come back to our feet to fight the Hamas back and to push the Hamas back to the Gazan territory. It was not uh, simple. I, I don't know many armed forces that can rehabilitate in so uh, short period of time and to enter to a counterattack. This was uh, one of our good lucks. Kenny, do you think that when you talk about these soft spots along the fence, do you think that Hamas had information in advance that it used to its um, benefit to penetrate over and through the fence? Yes, Hamas had uh, information. We know it from uh, inquiring uh, Hamas terrorists that we captured. And uh, there were uh, usually, in order to help the Palestinians, the Israeli administration allowed some of them to work in Israel. Some, uh, meaning uh, some thousands from Gaza and some dozens of thousands from the West Bank on a daily basis. And those that are Gazans and worked in uh, the same uh, settlements that later on they attacked and slaughtered their, their people. You see, the members of the kibbutz, for instance, they gave them work, they gave them food, they enabled them to live because uh, they earned money. They got their salaries in Israel. And then they came and slaughtered the same people that feed them uh, firstly. So, yes, they came with uh, information. They knew many locations, sensitive locations, some other locations. And according to what uh, we saw also in their combat maps, they knew a lot about uh, their targets. Yes. So it sounds like it was really a well-organized plan. And, you know, the idea of the um, Palestinians coming and killing the people who they knew is uh, just horrific to think about and consider. 
Earlier, I mentioned um, the United States has been providing financial aid to the Palestinians. Um, I know that this is something that's been happening for decades. It was stopped during the Trump administration, but kicked in again during the Biden administration. Um, but I also understand that the United States and Israel have always had a very, very special relationship, and it's um, critical uh, for both countries, honestly. So I'm wondering, in your opinion, is President Biden, since um, you know, since this war has started, has President Biden done enough for Israel and, and uh, the Israeli people uh, to support, in your opinion? I think that President Biden is the most committed president, American president ever, to the state of Israel and to its uh, security. He did a lot in uh, in those uh, events that we were speaking about. And as far as I understand, when it was notified to him that Hamas invaded and killed some uh, 1,200 uh, people, at one day, slaughtered them uh, in cold blood, he immediately sent some warships to the eastern part of the Mediterranean in order to deter Hezbollah and Iran because there was a worry that while we are dealing with uh, Hamas and we are in a state of trying to rehabilitate ourselves, it was before the counterattack that pushed them back to Gaza, there was a fear that Hezbollah will open fire as well and will do the same. Hezbollah has as well what he called the, the Radwan force, which they refer to it as commando units, and they have plans to invade the northern part of Israel. And there was a worry that they will do it with the support of Iran. Therefore, President Biden not only sent three forces, each of which is led by a carrier, but he also said in his voice that if anyone will dare to attack the state of Israel while we are struggling over there with the Hamas, then the United States of America might intervene. And I think that it was the right uh, time and the right uh, way to express it, and it helped. I think that uh, Hezbollah did not, uh, of course, they are fight, that there is a war along the northern border between Israel and uh, Lebanon, and Hezbollah fights the Israeli Defense Forces, but it is a, still a limited war. And this is due to the deterrence of the United States. How many days did it take for Israel to react and respond with military after October 7th? It uh, took us almost uh, no time because we have a very good uh, and effective system to recruit all our uh, reservists. The main force of the Israel Defense Forces and I do not reveal here any secret, is based on reservists. We have a standing on forces, 
but we have much more reservists in reserve units. You can find the division, the throw the division commander until the last chef. All of them are reservists, the battalion commanders and the brigade commanders, and all the division, as I said. And there are divisions which are active duty divisions, like the division that I commanded many years ago, and they are reinforced by reservists. So there are two types of reservists, those that reinforce uh, standing uh, force army, uh, military units, and those which are on part of a reserve unit. And I think that uh, the reservists started to appear less than 12 hours after the terrorists invaded Israel, which is uh, a very short time. And then, and then how many days until Israel actually struck back? Because we had uh, the military had uh, to organize them, to train them. It is something uh, new to enter into Gaza and uh, for the reservists and to fight between the houses. So it took uh, two weeks, I think, something like that, to add the things that were missing. I don't know, uh, combat vests and some other uh, parts that were missing. They were missing because when the reservists were called upon, they arrived to their camps. Not in number, which is 100% of what should be, but 150% of what should be. Everybody wanted to take part in the war and to join forces in order to uh, protect the citizens, although it was, in most of the cases, too late. But uh, till today, you can find that now we start to withdraw the reservists back to their homes. But uh, it is a phenomena that uh, I'm very proud of, that 150% of the Nindi people riot. It's it's really remarkable. I, I, I heard, like, beyond the vest, like, I actually have some colleagues of mine who are right now raising funds to help some of the reservists in the, in the north near Lebanon finance uh, night goggles, night vision. So I understand like beyond just the vests, there are other parts of gear uh, that's, that's still required. It is mainly, we, let, let's, let's speak about uh, the night going devices. We are talking about the modern ones, which are thermal. Okay, they are based on... Uh, thermal capabilities so that when you use them you can see a soldier uh, due to the fact that there are differences in the temperature of his body and the surrounding this is a thermal uh, night vision goggles now usually not every soldier wear it only part of them but everybody now wants it and it is it is beyond 
what the uh, Israeli Defense Forces prepared. So in these cases, understanding it uh, gives you a big advantage during nighttime over the terrorists. I understand fully why almost everybody would like to wear thermal light vision goggle. And uh, I'm, I'm pleased that the communities in the United States of America, Jewish communities, contribute to the uh, reservists, such devices. It's interesting. We talk about the time period from October 7th, the reservists start coming to Israel, and it was an extended period of time until um, Israel struck back and started, you know, started um, pushing Hamas back. But then as, you know, as a New Yorker, and I'm sure you saw this too, as an, as an Israeli, people all over the world started protesting against the Jewish people, against the Israelis um, in all the major cities, New York, London, Paris, um, all over the world. And Israel hadn't even struck back yet. Thousands and thousands of people were coming together here in New York, marching, and they still continue to do so. So I'm curious, Danny, like from your perspective, as you were hearing about these these um, protests against Israel that was just attacked and hadn't even started attacking back, like what was going through your mind? I know that you've been, you know, involved with the Israeli government and the military for your entire career, your entire life. Like what went through in your mind? Have you ever seen anything like this before? And what do you think is the cause of all of this? The cause of all of it, I think, is the fact that uh, the world is changing now. And today, uh, there are many, many people, students in the universities, mainly youngsters, I think, that participate in rallies against Israel because they side always with the what they think the the poor and the, the weak partner or part, they looked at the Israeli defense forces with tanks and APCs and guns and moderate we- and modern weapon systems. They looked at the bombardments that our air force bombed the cities because we do it due to the fact. The terrorists are there, and the terrorists use the population as a human as a human shield. We warn the uh, population to leave the places. In many cases, either they do not uh, leave the places because of their own willing, or they are forced to stay there because of the terrorists. And the terrorists, their mindset is that Israel will never dare to attack places where there are, which are suspected to be with non-involved Palestinians. But we have to to hit Hamas very fiercely. We have to destroy the frames of its capabilities, the battalions, the brigades that Hamas operated. And there is no way in such a dense area and environment that if Hamas does not allow the people to live, 
There is no way that they will leave, and there is no way that we will stay aside and will not attack. So what we are doing, we are doing our utmost in order to avoid any casualties among the population. But we have to, the, the, those who are rallying in the streets of New York or wherever, they have to ask the question, uh, the, the terrorists, because they are the ones that caused, from the beginning, they attacked us, and we are now counter-attacking in order to destroy them. And if I will not destroy them, people will never ever come back to their villages and cities in the western part of the Negev. In addition to it, we have a very bad propaganda system. Never worked. All along the years, never worked. Maybe because we do not allocate enough uh, uh, resources to have... Uh, and a propaganda system that will be able to tell foreigners which are living out of Israel that this is the picture. Instead of them, instead of them speaking against the terrorists that slaughtered babies, children, Anthony people, some of which Holocaust survivors. They condemn us. And in addition to it, anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is on the growth. It grow up because of many, many reasons. In Europe, in the United States, and those who are anti-Semitics, they will uh, condemn us and not condemn the Palestinians. So, you know, it's interesting, Danny, when you talk about Israeli you know, messaging, propaganda, marketing. Hamas isn't something new. Maybe these college, university-level students that you're signaling towards don't know the history of Hamas. I mean, certainly in your lifetime, you've seen this terrorist organization attack Israeli citizens over and over and over again. Your military, in fact, is there. Your military capabilities are there to defend itself against its its you know, the, the Israeli neighbors, Arab nations. But from your perspective, like, there, there seem a lot of parallels. We could go back to, like, the 90s. We could go back to the 80s, the 70s, Hamas, Hezbollah, Islamic Jihad. They all keep coming and coming, and it, it's the same thing. So what is the difference between, when you get to the, the, the uh, personal level, what's the difference between Israel and Hamas? Hamas is a religious terrorist organization and when you read its covenant, it has a covenant. It is written there that uh, any good Muslim should kill the Jewish people, but not only the Jewish people, also all the other infidels, the Christians, and even Muslims which do not behave accordingly to the Quran, the only book of the Islam. In addition to it, it is written there that they, that the good Muslim should participate in destroying the state of Israel. So they never ever recognize Israel 
and recognize our right to exist. Therefore, there is no way to negotiate with them, because you do not negotiate with your anger, the one who is going to or would like to end you. You fight against him. And this covenant and this uh, belief is uh, typical also to the Hezbollah, even though the Hezbollah are Shiites and the Hamas are Sunnis, and it applies also to all the other religious Muslim terror organizations in the world, and it applies also to Iran, because Iran, which is the octopus with so many arms, has the same concept to destroy the state of Israel and to build upon the remnants of the state of Israel and a new Shiite caliphate, which will handle the country and manage the issues strictly according to the Quran. And uh, this is something that they really intend to achieve. This is why Hezbollah uses, uses many other forces, like we call it proxies, the Hezbollah, the Islamic Jihad, the Hamas, the Houthis, the Shiite militias in Iraq, in Syria. We are surrounded by all of them. And as a matter of fact, it brings me to something which is different, and this is the axis of evil. Iran leads the axis of evil. The participants in the axis of evil are those that I mentioned. In addition to him, the axis of evil is supported by China and by Russia. The liberal axis is the axis that should be led by the United States. And usually what we thought, according to our security concept, was that Israel is capable to fight in order to, in order to defend ourselves by ourselves, but in, diff, in two fronts, like against the Hezbollah and the Hamas. When it comes to more participants, then the, uh, the, the liberal axis should uh, appear, and the United States of America should lead the modern axis with the participation of the European countries, Saudi Arabia, Egypt. The Hamas is the main, uh, the main uh, enemy of Egypt, for instance. Yeah. It's the motherhood. But it, it, it seems like um, the United States um, is doing everything they can to try to uh, curtail the spreading of this war you know, for a lot of reasons, including, by the way, politics, domestic politics here in the United States. But, you know, is it feasible then to beat Hamas? Like, essentially, you're talking about these terrorist nations, these proxies, not nations, but these proxy terrorist groups that have been around for decades and decades and decades and have been, you know, behaving the same way throughout lifetimes, generations now. So is it even feasible for Israel, with or without the support of the United States, to beat Hamas? No, of course, we don't need the support of the United States. We need their weapon systems. We need their munitions. 
We need uh, some uh, systems. We do not need any American soldier, soldier. We do not need American boots on the ground. We don't want anyone to defend us but ourselves. And we can decide the Hamas, and that's what we are doing now. We are pushing Hamas almost to a very critical point. And we are able and we are capable also to hit the Hezbollah. I have to confess that it won't be easy. And one mistake that we did along the years was that we took the possibility that uh, we are heading towards peace in the Middle East too seriously. And this tell you somebody like me, I always, almost all my life, in addition to fighting our enemies, I try also to find a way in order to strike a peaceful deal or normalization deal with our neighbors. What we did, we decreased armed forces. And we have today less divisions that we used to have. One of the lessons learned from What's going nowadays with Hamas and Hezbollah is that we have to uh, increase back our fighting forces and to use a lot of money in order to buy more equipment, more tanks, more aeroplanes, everything, in order to build additional capabilities. I would like also to note uh, two, two, two additional things. Firstly, I think that uh, our government is a body that does nothing. And I think that the prime minister should resign immediately. And this is because his part in the failure of the 7th of October, but also because of his part a year earlier when he came with the stupid idea of the judicial reform that we call the judicial coup, that disintegrated the Israeli society for months after months. We are lucky because we have wonderful soldiers. We have wonderful civilians. They left aside all the other issues. They stopped discussing and arguing, and they ran to the battlefield. But... I think that our Prime Minister Netanyahu, due to his involvement in the 7th of October or disinvolvement in the 7th of October, and even firstly, for the entire year since the creation, since the establishing of this government, he should resign immediately. And the other point is, look at the state of Israel. Right. Since '48, since we received our independence, we are fighting all the time. Major wars, like the Yom Kippur War, like the Six Days War, like the Sinai uh, uh, operation, like the two wars in Lebanon in, two, in 82 and uh, 2006. And at the same time, and we are not a rich country, we developed on the areas of our lives. We live in the area of uh, drones. 
We lead in the area of agriculture in arid areas. We lead in the area of uh, startups. It is a miracle. Although we have to invest a lot and time in order to being able to defend Israel, we have the capabilities to continue and to, de to develop all those arrays. And I see it as a miracle. And uh, I will do my utmost that it will continue to be a miracle and that this miracle will never be harmed. Danny, do you feel the immediate removal of Netanyahu would have a imminent positive impact on this war against Hamas and all of the Iranian proxies? Yes, I know Netanyahu many years. And I think that even today, during the war, he is behaving incorrectly, not in a correct way. Because whenever there is a collision between his personal interest and the interest of the war or the interest of the state of Israel, he always prefer his own interest. And it is not a new phenomenon. It started many years ago. We know it. This is our main claim against Netanyahu. You can hear it from many Israelis. So as long as this is the situation, and instead of leading the Israeli Defense Forces in the war, he's dealing with politics, he has to live. Well, it seems like he doesn't even trust his own supporters and his cabinet. Didn't he recently ask them to all take polygraph tests? Yes. Not only that, uh, he built a coalition which was unheard of. This is the most uh, right-wing coalition ever that was established in the state of Israel with the two ultra, I call them Kokrok's clan, member of, members of the Kokrok's clan, the Swatrich and, uh, and uh, uh, Manville. What they are doing now, what bothers them, is how to expand the area of the state of Israel, how to take over Judea and Samaria and annex it, how to annex the Gaza Strip and to build their settlements. And look, this is also the American attitude towards them. They see them, the American administration sees them as fascists, messianics, and uh, people that uh, use the opportunity of being elected to positions where they can influence in order to advance only their own, own agenda, not the agenda of Israel, their own agenda. And this is something that frightens me. Not frightens me, but worries me. Because uh, their agenda is opposite to the agenda that I think should be the agenda of the State of Israel, which means to hit the Hamas, to avoid the war with Hezbollah, and to try and to uh, solve it 
peacefully via diplomatic uh, ways and means to understand that uh, we will never ever control Gaza and we should not control Gaza and they are against uh, the two states to the two people. So you believe a two-state solution is the best path forward then? As a, as a matter of fact, yes, and I agree that we will have to make sure that uh, those which will lead the Palestinians in their state, and it won't going, it is not going to happen now, it will take time, but the leaders of the Palestinians which will hold their Samaria and the Gaza Strait should be honest, straight, should not call for anti-Semitism, should not call for terrorizing the state of Israel. If they want to live in this neighborhood next to us, they should be a, a, a peaceful entity. So... It's interesting going back, looking back in your career, a two-state solution obviously is, I, I would imagine, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I would imagine it's something that has been very important philosophically to you to find peace within the region for decades now. So I'm curious, like going back to your years um, in, in, you know, going back all the way back to Rabin, um, why has Israel been unable to find a peaceful solution with two states? At the beginning, we, the Israelis, after Oslo, we did not, Rabin did not speak about a state. Rabin spoke about an entity lesser than a state. He did not define it uh, in a more clear way, but I think that if Rabin was not assassinated, he would have come to the understanding that there should be a Palestinian state and not nothing which is amorphic, something less than a Palestinian state. Rabin tried his utmost. I was then his military advisor. I participated in all the talks with the Palestinians, the Jordanians, the Syrians. Wherever Rabin went to a meeting, I participated in the meeting with him as his closest advisor. And I think that we were very close to strike a deal with the Syrians and with the Palestinians. And we did not strike a deal with them because Rabin was assassinated. Now Barak tried again with the Syrians and the Palestinians. And there was a meeting at the beginning of 2000 between Clinton, President Clinton, and President Assad in Damascus. And the lion that was the demarcation on the map was almost the same line that existed in the 4th of June 67. But Assad was not ready to accept it because there were still differences minor ones between the two lions, the line that Clinton offered and the line that Assad remembered as the line of force of June 67. This is mainly because a dispute about no man's land areas that we 
cell that belong to us and the Syrian cell belong to them, but mainly the dispute was over the Lake of Galilee, where Assad said that he swore in the lake when it was under the sovereignty of uh, the, the Syrians. And President Clinton answered, you will be able to swim also now, he said, but not under the sovereign of, uh, of uh, Syria. Therefore, he did not accept it. He did not accept it also, or mainly, because he was dying. He died a few months later, and he was highly terrified that if he will uh, conduct a peace with Israel, where the line is not exactly to the millimeter, the former one, his son Bashar, which was going to to replace him, will see many difficulties. This is, you know, that uh, Bashar was the preference, was not the preference of Assad. The preference of Assad to replace him was uh, Basel that was killed in a car accident. And then, only then, after he was killed, Assad started to prepare Bashar to be the president. And he, he told that Bashar is, is not courageous enough, so he didn't want to do anything before he's going to die. With the Palestinians, we were in Camp David. I went there in July 2000. Who was with you in Camp David during that time period? I have been in Camp David. There was an uh, Israeli delegation of, uh, of 10 uh, people. I was one of them because I was then the chief of staff of Ehud Barak. I have been also in Camp David all, all along the, the days. And... Uh, the problem with Arafat was that Arafat was Arafat uh, feared that once he is going to talk about the interim issues, and according to Oslo, at the beginning of the third year, we had to start dealing with the permanent status. For the first time, we dealt with the permanent status only in Camp David. And Arafat was afraid, one, because in the permanent status, he should uh, make also concessions, not only us as it used to be until Camp David, because in uh, permanent uh, status, we have to deal with Jerusalem, with settlement, with uh, refugees, right of return, with uh, security arrangements with borders. So he was highly afraid. And he even said one day in my presence to President Clinton that if he will make any concessions over Jerusalem and Temple Mount, he will, he, he, he will be assassinated. And of course, we told him, until now, the one that was assassinated was not you, it was Rabin. And uh, the main two issues that were under dispute are the right of return, that we rejected it totally, and uh, Jerusalem, where we were ready to make concessions. We were ready to make concessions and to go 
towards Alpha, but he wasn't involved. He was there, but mentally, he wasn't involved. His two uh, uh, comrades, Abu Alain Abu Mazen, they did their utmost in order to foil the, 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 the talks. They didn't want it. They were all sure that it is an American-Israeli trail. To travel them to the corner, to ask them to make all those concessions. Unfortunately, we lost the opportunity. We could uh, achieve peace with the Palestinians. Do you feel the Palestinians have a qualified leader today within their ranks, just generally speaking, that can help organize peace in the region and perhaps find this two-state solution that you're, you're talking about? The answer is yes. I don't want uh, to point at someone from uh, obvious reasons. It is uh, the Palestinian right to choose their leader. No doubt that there are more than one. And you know, as we used to say, that cemeteries are full with people that did not have people to replace them. So when, when you had just going back to Camp David with Arafat, you had mentioned to me that you were going to share some recently declassified information. Is that, is that pertaining specifically to Arafat stating that he didn't want to go as far as making peace because he was fearful of his life being taken? No, it was, uh, firstly, it was, uh, it is written in my book. So uh, what I could reveal, I revealed uh, in my book, but I, I wanted uh, to tell you, uh, which is also not a secret anymore, that uh, before President Clinton waited to see President Assad in Geneva, at the beginning of uh, 2000, I think it was March 2000, the ambassadors of the United States of the United States to Israel, Martin Indyk, and myself, we demarcated the line together, and we went uh, to the points, and it was very very uh, sensitive, and we came with an offer that if President Assad wanted, he could declare that he received back the line that used to be the border before 4th of June 67. But as I told you previously, he was not ready to do it. Uh, because what we did, we drew the line, 90% of it or more exactly as the line that Assad demanded. And we did some small changes of hundreds of meters, not more than that, in relation to what was perceived by Assad as the line, but he was not ready to accept it. Do you feel, had your efforts during the, that Clinton era, the Barack and, and Clinton era, been successful, we might be in a better place today as it relates to the violence in the Middle East right now? No doubt that if we would have succeeded in achieving either a peace with Syria or a peace with the Palestinians, better a peace with the Palestinians, because this is the main conflict and the main issue between us and 
the Arabs, it would have changed totally the Middle East. I really think yet that the Middle East can be a wonderful place, a rich one, and the very advanced one. I also think that two people are needed in order to change totally the situation for the better. An Israeli leader and a Palestinian leader strong enough to being able to make decisions and to bring about the cease of the conflict and the cease of the war between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Danny, you've given me a tremendous amount of your time and your insight today, and I appreciate it. Before we wrap it up, I have a tradition with the show. I ask all of my guests to complete a sentence. The show, as you might recall, is named Some Future Day. And what I like to do is have my guests predict in the future what a particular uh, part of their world could look like. So if you're okay with it, I'd like to um, challenge you today with you finishing the sentence, um, in some future day, Israel and Jews throughout the world will. Yes, but unfortunately, I'm too optimistic and I know by the way, you know that in the Middle East, there is no way to survive. But if you are an optimistic, otherwise you will cry all day long and nights as well. Due to what happened in the 7th of October and the war that uh, goes right now, and uh, the possibility that uh, there will be also a war in the northern part of the state of Israel, I think that until... What I am praying to, which is a peaceful midnight, will happen. A long period of time is going to pass. I know your time is very important, so thank you so much for joining me today. For ongoing insights surrounding these important topics, you can join the conversation on my social media channels, including Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, at Mark Beckman. And to sign up for my newsletter on Substack, you can find me at markbeckman.substack.com. To make sure you don't miss a show, be sure to subscribe to Some Future Day across all major platforms worldwide, including YouTube, Spotify, and Apple. Special thanks to New York University for producing Some Future Day, and a big shout out to my producer extraordinaire, John Boomhofer for being patient and always encouraging me to push through. Thanks a lot, John. Have a great day.